Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Star Wars 7x7, episode 864. Today, the back half of my conversation with Bobby Roberts' podcast, Forced Ghost at Large and former podcaster from Full of Sith. Punch it, Chewie. <laughs> Hi, this is Alvin Johnson with the 501st Legion, and you're listening to Star Wars 7x7, the only daily Star Wars podcast. Hey, Rebel Rouser. Welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and thank you very much for rolling with the longer-form version of the podcast these last couple of episodes. Obviously, it wouldn't have done very well to try to split up this conversation into seven-minute chunks and spread it out over two weeks. I think that would have been testing the limits of anybody's attention span. So we're going to do it in one more 40-or-so-minute chunk right here. So enough from me. Let's get back into the conversation with Bobby Roberts, podcaster emeritus from Full of Sith, now a podcast forced ghost at large. We were talking about the trailer that just came out, the international trailer, and, you know, you mentioned that the international is is way better (laughs) than the domestic. I will say the international one that just came out seems to follow more or less the same sorts of, of elements of story as the last domestic trailer came out, Mm -hmm. and... Your take on it. Like, do you think that we're actually seeing basically the layout of the movie from start to finish? Uh, I think so. Uh, I'm, I'm, it seems to me like you, you open with the flashback, um, and then you get snapped into the, uh, the future and we learn along with the main character, what, what the deal is. And then we just follow them as they go on their adventure. Uh, you know, try to stop it, fail, try again anyway. Um, and then, you know, all or nothing last battle. I I think they're sort of explaining to us the skeleton of the plot and simultaneously sort of letting us know that the skeleton of the plot isn't necessarily what's important. What's important are the feelings that it's going to evoke along the way. And not to get uh, you know overtly political. It's going to be hard not to considering the uh, the aftermath of what just happened on November eighth. But I am noticing, and I noticed it very acutely with this trailer and with responses to this trailer, um, that people, I think, are keying in to the themes of this movie a little bit more uh, acutely, a little bit more strongly than they had been before. Like they were sort of uh, taking the story as it was presented to them in these commercials um, and trying to look at it from the perspective of how does it fit into the fictional universe? How does it fit into these movies that I already know about? And uh, after Tuesday, people are, you know, looking for diversions, looking for, uh, you know, means to sort of give their minds a rest, give their heads a rest, uh, give their hearts a rest and sort of dive into something, some some fiction, something they're familiar with. And they're going back to Rogue One. And now the trailers, the spots and especially this new international trailer um, are hitting them in ways that have nothing to do with the previous movies but are speaking to them as people um i i sort of feel like 
there's a really good chance this movie is going to end up seeming a little bit more resonant to a lot of the audience than it would have otherwise. Like the themes of rebellion, the themes of hope, the themes of taking chances and then taking the next chance and then taking the next chance until either you win or you run out of chances. That sort of stuff I think is going to resonate with people a little bit more than it might have. And I think this trailer, this international trailer speaks to that in a very strong way that most of the other trailers did not previous to this. My favorite trailer uh, was the teaser uh, because of that siren, the klaxon going off, it just there was a sense of immediacy, a sense of dread, uh, a sense of power to the thing. Just the way the images kept coming at you and the siren just wouldn't stop. And you got a sense of uh, immediacy and weight. Um, and this trailer has all of that and is blending it with a sense of hope and is blending it with a sense of purpose uh, and, and that resonance that I was talking about. And that's why I think it's probably the most effective of all of the uh, pieces of marketing that have come out for Rogue One since. Not just because you got the familiar, you're seeing the Death Star, they're calling it the Death Star. Uh, you're a little bit more solidly oriented in the universe of Star Wars. It doesn't seem, you know, kind of weird and, and knockoff in some ways. Like everything feels Star Wars, everything looks Star Wars. And even with just this trailer, it feels like it's going to be emotionally affecting you in a familiar Star Wars way, but in a way that Star Wars hasn't really quite tried to tug at your heartstrings before. And I think that's what this last ad is doing. Yeah, this is not, this is definitely not the Star Wars of our generation in a sense, because even when you think about the original Star Wars, we were just following a, a couple of people who basically stumbled into a giant intergalactic conflict. Mm. And, you know, not anything, you know, not any galaxy-wide scale uh, sort of situation, but they just, you know, Luke and, and Han and Chewie just happened to hook up on this mission. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, what have they gotten themselves into? This time, we are actually in with the people trying to affect change and and seeing what the cost is of this. And I think we've sort of been building up to it with the Clone Wars and with Star Wars Rebels as well, giving us the notion of how many people are involved in this and what's at stake for the whole situation. And now this is almost like you know, the comparative boss battle for all of that stuff happening as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of sacrifice built into this thing that um, I keep using the word resonant, but it absolutely resonates. Like, a lot of people never actually get to the finish line of whatever it is they're working on. But they are happy as they get to the end of their personal story in knowing that they at least set the table for the people that will come after them to not only go screaming across that finish line, but to set another goal for the generation behind them to realize the, the beautiful future that they wanted to set up. And I think a lot of the emotional underpinning of Rogue One is built on that idea. This isn't necessarily so much about making sure we get to a medal ceremony. A lot of the people in this movie are not going to ever really be recognized for what they did. Um, and they're going to do things in the pursuit of that greater good that will largely go ignored. But that doesn't necessarily diminish the actions and the meanings of those actions. And I think 
that hasn't actually been touched on in Star Wars to any significant degree. And I think that's what this movie is going to be trying to push on an emotional level, that your work is just as meaningful and just as good and just as important, even if you are the supporting character in the larger story of what's happening. These guys stole the Death Star plans. They're a line in the opening scroll of Star Wars. But when you get down to it, when you break down their story, is just as compelling and just as emotional, hopefully, as the story, the main thread that we've been following for 40 years. That's, I think, the hope. I mean, and, and that's a that's a huge, ambitious endeavor to undertake with the first ever spinoff film. And I think that might be what Iger was trying to sort of uh, steal people for, is that this isn't going to be a movie with the big, bold, brassy ending, or even the the huge, dark, downer ending that we got with the prequel trilogy. Like, this is going to be a movie that moves in much more measured emotional circles, and that doesn't necessarily scream huge blockbuster. Um, actually, we sort of touched, you touched on it uh, just a little bit ago. It might be a blockbuster that sort of deals more emotionally in the same sort of areas as something like The Dark Knight. Okay. Like yeah. what if you what if you get out of Rogue One not feeling super hopeful, super great, but that same sort of relief and uh, and and and, uh, and hope, relief blended with hope that you got when you left the Dark Knight. Like that wasn't necessarily a happy ending, right? But you felt good, but you felt good because you knew that what he had sacrificed for meant something. And I think maybe that's the story track that Rogue One is on. Yeah, and you knew you know the the worst of. It, the issues had been handled. Mm. You know, the Joker was handled. Harvey Dent was handled. You know, that was at least taken care of, even if the result for the hero of the story was not ultimately yeah. all that great. Yeah. There was a viable way forward pointed by the actions of our hero. And Rogue One almost has to end that way because we know that they got the plans out and we know the Death Star got blown up. So there's definitely it, this is all about the challenges and the struggles of the people making sure to clear the way for the people behind them to do the good work that we all deserve. And not only is it a compelling story, but it also has to be a compelling story as far as Lucasfilm is concerned, because if they can't create compelling stories around these characters in these situations, then what is the point of $4 billion for Lucasfilm? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they have to be able to sustain this thing beyond, you know, sticking a Skywalker in it somewhere, anywhere, or just having a character have the Skywalker name plastered onto them post facto. Like, they've got to figure out a way to get people to want to be interested in Star Wars, regardless of who is going to be in the Star Wars movie, much in the same way people will show up for anything with a Marvel logo on it now. Like, mm -hmm. people don't. People will accept anything if they know they've got that logo in front of it. I remember everyone acting so surprised that uh, Guardians of the Galaxy worked. Oh, we got a talking tree and a raccoon. It's like, well, look, talking animals and talking trees aren't even new. Like, you guys are spending hundreds of million dollars to go watch that in 2002 when Hobbit movies were ruling the world, you know? Ah, right. Like, talking animals mm -hmm. is, not a, it's not a super special thing. It's just you weren't used to seeing that in that specific genre before. But you stick a Marvel logo on it, suddenly people want to give it a chance. Enough people give it a chance, they come to sort of expect anything and are open to having anything show up behind that logo. It gives them 
the permission to be a little bit more adventurous. And I think that's what they're looking to do with Star Wars. So when you see Star Wars, you don't immediately think Skywalker. Mm-hmm. You think, I'm going to have a good time at the movies. That's a lot more broad. That's a lot more general. And I think the marketing of these films is sort of speaking to that as well. And we'll see what happens when the Han and Lando movie comes out. And hopefully they are selling and hopefully they are selling a buddy comedy. And then all of a sudden you have to deal with the idea that you're going to be watching uh, an action comedy in outer space that's just goofy and fun and ridiculous in, in more of a Lego movie 21 Jump Street sort of way than you've ever seen in Star Wars before. Um, and and then that'll be another adjustment. And eventually you're hoping Lucasfilm is just sort of like, OK, we got another Star Wars movie and people start rubbing their hands together, not because they know there's going to be X-Wings and TIE Fighters and Star Destroyers, but because they know the people in charge are you know, dedicated to making sure what they're going to watch is going to be really, really fun and really, really well made, no matter what genre it fits in. Yeah, I mean, and that's it's all about the brand experience. And on the Marvel side of things, you know, they couldn't have done Guardians of the Galaxy without doing Avengers and Iron Man and Captain America. Like they had to set the tone for the brand experience before they started to then subvert it basically with something like guardians of the galaxy and then ant-man and you know now dr strange yeah yeah i I think i mean i know i earlier said they weren't really using the same playbook and they're not the way the the films play out uh the way the films interconnect um you're not going to see stingers in a star wars movie i'm fairly certain (laughs) yeah Uh, you know, those sorts of things aren't going to be used, but the same general idea as to how to make your cinematic universe viable, I think those are absolutely going to be shared. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's that's the, the cliff that we are standing on the edge of before we take our swan dive. Now, whether we splat pack into the hard earth like Wile E. Coyote uh, or we end up going for a nice, pleasant swim uh, in, in a placid lake of wonderfulness provided to us by Lucasfilm, uh, we'll find out on December 16th. But I think that's that's the precipice that we're standing on the edge of. And I hope it's a positive experience uh, at the end. It still could be. All the stuff that I just talked about uh, could be for naught if it turns out Gareth Edwards once again uh, turned in a beautiful spectacle uh, full of cardboard people that, that don't speak to each other like human beings. That's what happened in Godzilla. Uh, that's absolutely what happened in Monsters. He's not very good with actors. Ooh. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the reshoots that happened specifically addressed that and sort of injected uh, personality and warmth uh, and and a, a sense of humanity into these characters because I've seen Godzilla and I've seen monsters and left to his own devices, Gareth Edwards will just sort of put up the most cardboard version of a person in front of some of the most amazing scenery that you've ever seen. Uh, and if that's what happens with Rogue One, then everything I just talked about is completely for naught because Uh-oh. you you won't connect with anybody. They'll just slide right off of you. Um, so I hope that's not the case. And if that is the case, then Lucasfilm's got a lot of work cut out for them. Uh, and Lord and Miller and the Kasdans uh, and the wonderful cast they've assembled for Han and Lando, they need to really you know put their foot on the gas and deliver a super entertaining experience uh, to make up for that to keep uh, their their way forward viable. So based on what you've seen so far of the Rogue One trailers and the TV commercials, do you have a gut answer on whether you think Gareth Edwards has the character situation handled or whether the team behind him and, you know, maybe Tony Gilroy being brought in has something to do with this as well? Like, do you feel like they've got it settled and that that Achilles heel of Gareth Edwards has been addressed? 
I hope so. I got to imagine that they knew sort of going in who they were getting and, and you know, what his previous work had been, that there was going to need to be some massaging, some, some you know, realigning of what it is he does as a filmmaker. Uh, that seems like it was obvious, but it, it, the fact that there were as many reshoots as there were, even though they were scheduled, even though they were planned out and done with his, you know, involvement, like from what I understand, he was asking for them. So it's not like they got, you know, dumped on his head. Like he got pulled into the principal's office and had a finger wagged at him by Kathy Kennedy. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it was like that. I mean, I think he saw what he made. Um, he was like, all right, how do I make this better? You guys. And then, and people had their, uh, their suggestions. It's like, great, let's, let's, you know, apply these suggestions. I, I think it's entirely possible. He turned in something that was a lot colder than anyone wanted, including himself. I think he worked with uh, Tony Gilroy on Godzilla before. Um, I think it's entirely possible that the version of the movie we're going to get uh, is going to be one that was fine-tuned. I don't think that's a bad thing. People want there to be like some sort of uh, idealistic original version of every film that has been untouched by everyone but the director. Uh, And those versions are called assembly cuts, and they suck. They are terrible. The first, the first cut of any movie uh, before it goes into post and gets reworked and reshot is more often than not, I want to say like 99% of the time, god awful. The directors squirm through it. The actors cringe through it. The people who have to work on post are constantly like checking with each other like, oh my god, we have to rehabilitate this crap? Are you kidding me? The <laughs> The first cut of almost every single movie you love to death, I guarantee you would be awful to watch. And there's hardly a filmmaker in the world who would disagree with me on that note. Except so maybe Ridley th- Scott and Blade Runner. <laughs> no, Oh my goodness, the amount of work that had to go into making Blade Runner stable. <laughs> and even then, the, the legend of Blade Runner. I will go off on Blade Runner almost twice as long as I'll go off on Star Wars. Oh the, legend of Blade, the legend of Blade Runner has gotten such that People treat the original theatrical version as if it was something Ridley Scott scraped off his shoe and sort of, <laughs> you know, released on Laserdisc for the unwashed masses. Uh, and they forget now, even though there's a final cut and a director's cut that people, uh, you know, treasure and own, that the reason it even got the cult status it needed to have a restored final cut is because people appreciated the theatrical so much, even with the voiceover that wasn't very good. People appreciate the reason Blade Runner is the legendary sci-fi classic that it is isn't because of the final cut. And it's not even because of the director's cut. It was because of the theatrical. People loved, cherished, acclaimed the theatrical. They trashed it on opening. But when they went back and revisited it on home video and started diving into the miles deep of themes in Blade Runner, they were doing that with the theatrical. They weren't doing that with the director's cut. The director's cut was a reward for people who always recognize how amazing that movie was in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even then, you've got decades of work on a film polishing, repolishing. Even Blade Runner had reshoots up until like 2007. They were reshooting stuff for that film. What? to get fine. Yeah, um, I believe they reshot, uh, oh, what's her name? Joanna Cassidy's character, where she goes diving through the plate glass. You're kidding me. They reshot that for the final cut, yeah, and used CGI enhancements to sort of blend it in. Uh, but yeah, there were reshoots on Blade Runner up until 2007. <laughs> man, a that, lot, 
That oh. makes Lucas look like a piker. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but but I mean, yeah, like movies uh, going and getting reshoots isn't. I don't know how. Well, I know how, but I don't understand why we just automatically go along with the idea that a movie going back for reshoots and a movie being reworked is automatically a sign that uh, all is not good in in Pleasantville. It's that's not the case. That's just how you make movies. Um, I don't care how many times I had to go back and reshoot Rogue One uh, to get the performances correct. So long as when it plays on December 16th, those performances are correct. I don't care how many times someone had. I don't care who came in and had to put their thumbprint on it to make sure that the scales balanced out so that a very entertaining movie is what I saw on the screen. So long as I get that entertaining movie. If there had been newspapers or not newspapers, if there had been Internet as solely devoted to the production of a film. When Empire Strikes Back was being made. People would have lost their minds. Oh, Star God, Wars yeah. fans would have vomited into their own mouths at the idea of what was going on for the making of the Star Wars sequel. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have accepted it. Yep. There, they, there would have been fighters. They would have flipped over cars and ripped off their shirts. <laughs> <laughs> they would have been absolute chaos. Uh, but they didn't pay attention and it didn't matter to them how far over budget it went, what crises were going on behind the scenes, what fights were happening. Um, all they cared about is that when the movie played, it blew their socks off. And I'm hoping that's the, that's what, that's the experience we'll have when we watch Rogue One, hopefully. And I think as moviegoers, we're getting more educated about these sorts of things so that the idea of reshoots will not be as traumatic or as nerve wracking as it is to, you know, to, fans of of our particular nature you know or just we're all getting used to this idea that the way that they make movies is a little bit different and you know we're dealing with a media that is so desperately scrambling for eyeballs and attention that they're going to frame things in a way that will drive it's clickbait you know i mean that's ultimately what it comes down to whether like how can we say this particular thing and make it sound like something is really happening you know mm. trouble in river city with a capital t and all that yeah, fun stuff it stands yeah. for fool. yeah uh you remember that one huh <laughs> yeah yeah my mom made me watch the music man at a very early age oh yeah love uh, that you, you gotta watch the classics you gotta and that helps with the uh, perspective that i was talking about earlier you can't you can't just watch star wars you got you gotta follow the those uh those those histories into different avenues of of the uh, the Netflix queue, and watch that stuff. Watch the Music Man. Watch. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other uh, classic film. Uh, watch the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Give a shot to the Goodbye Girl. As a matter of fact, everyone knows Star Wars came out in 1977, and everyone knows that it didn't win the Oscar because Annie Hall won the Oscar. Right. I'm not even going to suggest that you watch Annie Hall. Like we were talking about Smokey and the Bandit. Watch that. Uh, watch the Goodbye Girl. Watch Laura. Uh, there's so many really good movies that came out in just that year alone that got eclipsed by Star Wars. Go ahead and give those movies a shot. I guarantee you it is going to inform your sense of storytelling and the way that you consume story, and it's going to give you a better appreciation of what it is Star Wars did. Do the same thing with 1980. Uh, you know, the same month that Empire Strikes Back came out, I think Blues Brothers came out, you know? Um, Ordinary people won the Oscar that year, I think. Exactly. Like, just go down the line. Next mm-hmm. time you're thinking, I'm going to watch Star Wars for the 212th time. Mm-hmm. And I give think... Give from that same year a shot, 
and sort of broaden your horizon, you'll get a better sense of how storytelling in film uh, can change, can be malleable, can be manipulated, and it'll give you a better appreciation for Star Wars. I guarantee it. And it was it was a Burt Reynolds movie, and I think it was Smoking the Bandit, but I could be wrong. But I think that was the one that was the number two grossing movie the year that Star Wars came out. Yeah, it was. It was uh, Smoking the Bandit. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully we'll get to a point where, <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be fun if another 10 years down the line, one of the Star Wars story movies is a very experimental Star Wars story film by a little known director named George Lucas. <laughs> I will I will say this though um and it was something I was talking about uh when there was a news story speaking of clickbait uh that tried to put the most dramatic spin on the most uninteresting story possible um and it's something that feeds on this misconception with a lot of Star Wars fans um people got to get used to the idea that Lucas is never coming back oh yeah yeah he's never coming back you guys mm-hmm. I don't want to sound like Maz Kanata too much <laughs> he's never coming back it's mm-hmm. not it, that's why he sold the company in the first place i remember when it was the indiana jones story and people were all like oh they're gonna make another indiana jones movie without george lucas i'm like how how is this news he's like well they made all the other movies with george lucas i'm like oh you mean all the other movies uh before he sold his company right <laughs> those mm-hmm. movies when he was actively interested in still making giant blockbusters before he decided to sell his giant blockbuster machine on his own the sale that he initiated he doesn't want to make these movies anymore you guys he's done he's mm-hmm. absolutely done if he wasn't <laughs> done he wouldn't have sold his giant movie company <laughs> right right so he's he's not coming back although if i could get an invite into whatever little private movie parties he's throwing in his garage oh yeah Oh God, I would love that to death. I would love to see the weird things that he's making with like a a, a red camera in his backyard for mm-hmm. fifteen. It's like I want to see those. Like, uh, here we go. Uh, this is a silent film about the story of a single petal on a dandelion uh, as as it is blown off of its stem by the wind. And it's like a, a you know, it's got this weird Philip Glass music playing in the background, and it's just this camera and this petal. Uh, I'll watch that. I'll watch that and eat popcorn and and just love the hell out of life. If I could get a, <laughs> if I could get an invite to one of those, that would be brilliant. Uh, but I'm I'm not ever in my life expecting George Lucas to make a return to any Lucasfilm property because if he wanted to be involved on that level, he wouldn't have sold Lucasfilm. Okay, so I want that I. I can't let that stand. I know you've been so generous with your time and like, and I, I want to like get to one last question to wrap it up, but I gotta, I gotta ask you something about that because Lucas of course came and visited Gareth Edwards. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think about that? Is it possible that he's all right? I, first of all, let me make it clear. I'm with you. He's not coming back. Like it's yeah. it's funny to think that he might make a little experimental movie and and call it a Star Wars movie and let them release it as a Star Wars story. Like that just <laughs> amuses me. But like I'm yeah. with you. He's not coming back. He ain't coming back. Like you get it. But what do you make of the fact that he actually came to meet Gareth Edwards? Mm-hmm. I I I just think he's a retired guy. I mean, I mean, to be selfish about it and to sort of look at it through my through my own eyes, like. I don't make podcasts anymore, but I still podcast. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I still show up and, and talk to people who, who want to have me around for a little bit. I got to imagine it's sort of the same thing. This is a guy who's been making movies uh, for a good 50 years now, you know? Mm-hmm. I gotta imagine if they want, if he wants to visit a set, he's gonna go visit a set. I mean, it's still in his blood. I don't think it's gonna translate to him ever making a movie again. But I gotta imagine if you're George Lucas and you know they're making a Star Wars movie somewhere and you've got a free afternoon <laughs> and an extra four billion, yeah, you might fly over and see what's going on. It mm-hmm. might, it might be a cool little visit. And I, I, I think that's gotta be all it was. Uh, I did like that he was, he was apparently busting Gareth Edwards' balls. Um, mm-hmm. I do think th- this is the thing that I, I find most interesting of all the directors that have worked on Star Wars. I really do get the sense that Gareth Edwards is maybe the close has the most in common with George Lucas, especially when it comes to uh, the eye, the way he frames things mm-hmm. uh, and the way he directs actors. I mean, that last one sounds like it's a bit of a dig, but it isn't really like he Gareth Edwards is very much concerned with how the image on the screen is telling you the story by itself. To the point where sometimes he doesn't really pay enough attention to what the actors are doing. And if you get a good enough actor, you can skate. I mean, Harrison Ford, uh, (laughs) Alec Guinness, those guys carried the first Star Wars. And everyone involved has said George wasn't really too interested in directing us as actors. Uh, That's sort of why the joke Faster, More Intense secured such purchase in the fandom, right? Right. Uh, and I think, I mean, you look at Gareth Edwards, you look at Godzilla, you look at monsters, it's kind of the same thing. He rolls the dice on really good actors, hopes they will give him a great performance. But what he's really concerned with is the frame, the way the frame moves, the way things in the frame can sort of awe you and fill you with a sense of wonderment just by their being on screen. Uh, and I, I think he has a lot in common with George Lucas as a filmmaker. And I think a lot of people who might not have liked the the 80s Spielberg-esque version of Star Wars that we got with The Force Awakens, because that's definitely what J.J. gave us. He gave us a Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. I okay. think they, I'll give you I that, yeah. They, I think they might be a little bit more comfortable uh, with sort of Lu- the Lucasian touches that Gareth Edwards can bring to Star Wars. All right. I'll give you that. Okay. All right. All right, so here are my the three logical jumps I have to make to wrap this up. So oh. you said um, <laughs> and reemphasized the fact that Lucas is not coming back, but like the Maz Kanata line that you threw out there, there's somebody who still can. That mm. would be Kathleen Kennedy, of course. And yeah. the question I want to ask you before we wrap this whole thing up has to do with something that Kathleen Kennedy said about Felicity Jones's character, Jen Erso. She equated Jyn Erso's character to a Joan of Arc-like situation. So, you know, as we were talking about the possibility that not everybody comes to a happy ending in this movie, what do you think the chances are that Jyn Erso survives the events of Rogue One? Zero. Wow, okay. I think she's going to die. I think think she and her father are both going to die. I would not be surprised if the last shot, um, or the close to the last shot, um, is her having suffered some sort of mortal wound, uh, knowing that she's not going to survive whatever it is, but smiling in satisfaction that she knows that the plans got out and were received. Um, if this movie Iris is out on the back end of the Tanta V4 as it jumps to hyperspace away from wherever they are uh, and then smashes into credits like that would be perfect. I would love that. 
because you don't need to follow the Tanta V4. You don't need to have a Leia cameo. You don't need to even see how the plans got received on top of that ship. You just need to know that the button got hit to beam the plans over, and that means game over for the Empire at that moment. Uh, and that's all the uplift that you need to carry you out into the lobby feeling like you got your money's worth if the rest of the dramatic elements are in step. Um, her death, if that happens, I think can only enhance that feeling. You, you kind of want something bittersweet. I'm, I don't know if you want something too happy. Although if she does live, if, if she and her father do live, that's not necessarily going to weaken it either. It just depends on how they present it. But I really do feel like we're getting... I mean, Joan of Arc did not live. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That was that was not a uh, a super happy ending. She didn't get a medal at the end of all of that, you know. Uh, so I think I think the fact that she name dropped Joan of Arc is also it's not as a direct answer as the one she gave regarding the opening scroll, but it should point you in the general direction as to who is going to make it out of this movie. I don't think the entire crew is going to be dead. I know there are. Uh, there are uh, people within the community who love to make a joke out of uh, at a Jiang at Wen's uh, response at Star Wars Celebration. Uh, they love to to mock the accent and mock him, accidentally letting slip that uh, you know some of the characters in this film aren't going to make it. But on the other hand, we all knew some of the characters were not going to make it. And once we found out Darth Vader was going to be in the film, absolutely knew not all of these characters were going to make it. Um, so I I think it's sort of built in like we know not all of these guys are going to get out, but that's part of the point of it. Uh, you don't need the classic happy ending for this film to work dramatically, or at least you shouldn't. If it's been written right, you absolutely shouldn't. Part of part of what will give this story its weight is the fact that sacrifices have been made uh, much in the same way. Ben didn't get out of Star Wars. Han didn't get out of The Force Awakens. Sometimes you need these characters to commit sacrifices for the greater good of the larger story. And there I think, you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a perfect slam bang ending to a wonderful movie and a wonderful conversation. If it happens that way, I mean, the conversation <laughs> certainly happened that way. I can say that for sure. <laughs> thank you man thank you very much absolutely so bobby roberts for the benefit of all of our listeners of star wars 7 by 7 where should people check out what you have going on in your world these days uh find me on twitter that's uh that's basically it as a uh <laughs> as a uh podcast force ghost at large uh i basically don't do anything but uh go to work uh check twitter and facebook every now and again uh and then uh and tweet things although uh, if you're looking for mostly Star Wars related stuff, uh, maybe check my Twitter in about a week, week and a half. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> currently, well, that's not so much a hint as it is currently I'm very politically focused right now. I work at a newspaper, so I kind of have to be. Uh, so you're probably going to get a, a big fat shotgun blast full of politics if you try to check my Twitter shortly after this goes up. Uh, <laughs> if you give it like a week or two. I'm imagining things will will get to the point where you'll see more Star Wars stuff sort of sneak in there uh, a, a little bit. But uh, Bobby Roberts PDX on Twitter is the best way to find me. Excellent. And you are working a little bit on another podcast as well, um, or at least helping out behind the scenes a little bit, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I help uh, post-produce, uh, record, and edit a, uh, a bi-monthly show. Um, so I'm, I guess... I'm kind of 
out of retirement, but but not really. It's sort of like a it's a thing that I'm just helping out some really good film critics with. Uh, it's a show called Eighties All Over, uh, and it's uh, hosted. It's the brainchild of they submit all the content to it uh, of Scott E. Weinberg. Uh, he used to be of Cinematical uh, Film dot com. He's worked for Playboy dot com. He's one of the preeminent horror critics uh, on the internet and has been for like 15, 16 years. He's been everywhere. Uh, and Drew McWeeny, who used to be of Hit Fix and uh, Ain't It Cool News. Uh, he's actually written screenplays that have been produced and made. Uh, but he's uh, primarily known as one of the best film critics to ever come out of the online realm. Uh, and those two got together and decided they wanted to make a show where they go through. Each episode is simply a month from the 80s. And they're starting at January 1980 and then just going through month by month and reviewing all the films that came out in that month in order. Uh, so the show is currently on July. Uh, that one is one of them cutting together right now, July of 1980. And the idea is that they'll just keep going until they hit December of 1989. And then that's the show. So <laughs> that's basically what they're doing. It's amazing uh, the the task that they're undertaking. So, I mean, if you want a quick, uh, you know, crash course in film history, that'll give it to you because there's a lot of movies that a lot of people have forgotten ever existed that they are seeking out and watching and reviewing in five, six minute bite sized chunks uh, for you to to know about, to learn about, and hopefully go and seek out if it interests you. So, uh, yeah, I, I help out with that show. I help record it and uh, and cut it together and, and drop in the little trailer bits so you have a sense of, you know, what it was like to have this movie open for you in 1980 as you're sitting down and watching television on your 13-inch zenith while, you know, eating <laughs> breakfast cereal. Uh, <laughs> that's basically the, that's the secret sauce that I lend. I go and hunt up the... Uh, the audio clips and drop them in so you get a sense of what the 80s actually were like and not the sort of stranger things polished up uh nostalgic look of the 80s like this is that brown <laughs> naga hide 80s that it really was if you lived through it and they're reviewing it month by month so 80s all over and you can find that on twitter um you can uh listen to it on on itunes stitcher uh, Blueberry. It's it's fairly available. So if you want to check that out, listen to some of the best film critics the internet has ever read, uh, just sort of hanging out and walking through film history one month at a time, 80s all over. Which, you know, is exactly what you were talking about earlier, where if you want to get a better sense of, you know, the, the world outside of Star Wars and bring some of that to bear on your experience, there's a, a great way to sample what's out there. And it's something that they they've probably already covered the empire strikes back then as well since you're already cutting july they, so they've already gone through may of 1980 then as well yeah it was uh it was really it was a that was a fun one like they knew people were going to be tuning in just to see how that empire strikes back thing worked and i think i think they got what they wanted in that people might have been tuning in for empire strikes back but they went hunting down a whole bunch of stuff they didn't know even existed in that same month and uh and that's that's how 80s all over is supposed to work. So, mm -hmm. excellent. Well, Bobby Roberts, thank you again so much for coming back on the show. And the third time will be some kind of charm, I know. <laughs> and hopefully, it won't be a year <laughs> until the next one. In fact, I I fully intend that it will not be a year until Great. the next time you're on the show. So, thank you again so much for taking the time out of your life to chat with me. All right, thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. 
And that's going to do it. So thank you again for tuning in to my conversation with Bobby Roberts. And please do check him out on his social channels and check out 80s all over as well. Now I've got a quick break to take and then we will do trivia. Hang on. Hey, Rebel Rouser. You're listening to this podcast. Maybe you'd like to listen to a Star Wars story too. Luckily, we've got just the thing for you. We've partnered with Audible to give you a free download and a free 30-day trial of their awesome service. All you got to do is go to audibletrial.com SW7X7 to sign up and get your free download. They've got dozens of Star Wars titles, anything you want to do to explore that galaxy far, far away. One more time for you, audibletrial.com SW7X7. Welcome back. I've got a trivia answer and a new question here for you. This is a rebellion, isn't it? Well, maybe it is because we're switching up the trivia a little bit this week. First, though, the question I asked you yesterday was about Captain Phasma. She ordered Finn to report to her division, and did he? The answer is yes, he did. Today's question, we're going to go behind the scenes, and my first question for you is, what is the name of the island in real life on which Luke and Rey had their last scenes in The Force Awakens? Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before you get set up for your attack run, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And we'll be able to do even more with the show for you with your support at Patreon.com SW7x7. It's not three marks at 210, it's Destiny Unleashed. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2016 Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.